This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. Hello, traders, and welcome to the aforementioned Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. In case you're listening for the very first time, allow me to inform you that this is the show where we talk about markets, futures, forex, and trader psychology with some of the best in the industry. I'm your de facto hype man, Jack Pelzer. What does that mean? Well, consider me your flavor flave without the giant alarm clock. Basically, I appear briefly at the beginning of each episode to whip the audience into a frenzy, or more often than not, set the bar incredibly low, so that our esteemed host, Jeff Carter, can come along and burn the house down with one of his incredible interviews. And wow, do we have a humdinger of an interview today on Limit Up. This month, we've been focused on the themes of discipline and leadership, and our guest this week certainly encapsulates both. Let's start with his leadership bona fides. Today's guest was a VP at Merrill Lynch until 2010. Then he said, hey, sorry, Merrill Lynch, I'm starting my own company. So he started his own investment firm called My Group that had $2.5 billion in assets under management before it was acquired by CapTrust in 2014. Did he stop then? No. The very next year, our guest today founded a robo-advisor retirement plan called Honest Dollar, which in 2017 was acquired by none other than Goldman friggin' Sachs. Did he retire? Hell no. Fish swim, cheetahs run, leaders gotta lead. Our guest started a brand new company that he and Jeff will probably spend a lot of time discussing today. So without further ado, allow me to reveal the identity of today's guest. He's the founder and CEO of Rocket Dollar. Mr. Henry Yoshida. Rocket Dollar is a retirement planning company that doesn't limit your 401k investments to stodgy old stocks and bonds. They let you invest in almost anything. Private equity, real estate deals, peer-to-peer -peer lending. I mean, probably some cool investments that I don't even know exist yet. Jeff and Henry will get into all that during the interview. Seriously, traders, missing this would be a sin. That's right, I'm going biblical. It would be a sin not to learn from Mr. Henry Yoshida and apply his mindset, his discipline, his leadership to your own business and trading decisions. Because remember, folks, your trading account is a business. Treat it accordingly. But before we get to the interview today, I would be in dereliction of my duties if I didn't check in on this week's futures market activity with the man who is called by some the Oracle of Delaware, Mr. Mark Meadows and the market reaction. We're headed for an interest rate cut. That's for certain. At least that's what the market thinks. And that's fine. We can jump on that trend. We can ignore the facts that the U.S. economy is growing at more than 3%, inflation is non-existent, and the unemployment rate is less than 4%. I mean, seriously, the Fed's mandate is for full employment and price stability. If that's not what we have, then here comes the boom times. But here's the rub. I can think all this is absurd and still realize I don't have to fight it. There are larger factors at play. I am a small fish. What I do in the markets doesn't matter. And that's why price rules everything. We are, at least when I'm recording this, at all-time equity highs. That is a fact. Whether the market is overvalued is an opinion, and one that doesn't matter much 
since I can't move the market. If you're struggling to divorce your opinions from your trades, then you'll struggle making profits. This is a lesson that I've learned over a decade of trading and one that I thought was important to reinforce, especially this week. And that's your market reaction. Thank you, Mark. As a side note, Mark also considers himself to be quite the chef gourmand, and he's actually cooking a bunch of us dinner tonight. So I'll be sure to let all the listeners know next week whether he was actually any good at it. Anyway, traders, you already heard my spiel about today's guest in the intro, and I'm sure you'd much rather hear his insights directly from the source. So without further delay, Top Step Trader is proud to present a downright fascinating limit-up conversation between our very own Jeff Carter and the founder and CEO of Rocket Dollar, Mr. Henry Yoshida. Enjoy, everyone. Welcome to the Limit Up podcast, courtesy of Top Step Trader. I'm Jeff Carter, and I'm here with Henry Yoshida. His current position right now is CEO and co-founder of Rocket Dollar, but he has a pretty interesting life, and we'll talk about that. Henry, what is your career like? We were kind of chatting before. You said you started um, in the internet bubble, and it blew up. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, I, I graduated from college uh, with plans to go to law school until I found out how much law school was going to cost. Uh, ha! My daughter's in law school now. She's a big fan of Bernie Sanders. So yeah, forgive all the loans. Yeah. <laughs> no, she's not. She's not. But I mean, I'm just joking. Yeah. That's right. Uh, I guess that's a big thing now. So people maybe will take on loans with the expectation they could get um, uh, taken away. But so I ended up deciding to just kind of take a job and was interviewing around. I graduated from the University of Texas and was able to get on with the Merrill Lynch office in Austin, Texas, thinking it would be sort of a placeholder. But of course, it was the year 2000. Uh, the internet bubble was basically just starting to burst in March of 2000 and so forth. So started working and basically to survive, I couldn't work with individual Folks, I was a 21-year-old kid. No one was going to give me a million dollars to manage and ended up pivoting to small business retirement plans. And it kind of changed the course of my thinking related to financial services. And, you know, you flash forward 10 years there, sort of, uh, I think I was Merrill Lynch, then Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, uh, Merrill of America, maybe for two weeks, somewhere in there when they were trying to hash it out and, and then left and kind of full, went full-blown RA. That was another five years in financial services. and then. In the fintech. So one of the things, you're an angel investor, I'm an early stage seed investor, started Hyde Park Angels. You see in times of economic stress, great companies get created. And there you are in a situation where, okay, I'm just going to build a book of business. It's 2001. It all explodes and you have to find a way to survive. And then you start this thing, which leads you down an incredibly successful career path. That's very interesting. It was a game changer for me. Uh, you know, I always talk to people that I was, there were 50 people in our class uh, after a year and a half, I was one of only three that survived. And uh, I was only one of those three uh, that didn't have someone who already worked at the office or for the company somewhere else. Yesterday, I came across this article on, they were talking about how your mind has to work to be successful. And they were talking about, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours this other person, Angela Duckworth, talks about grit and how, you know, yeah, that's part of it. But a lot of times people that are that way continually kind of go at the problem the same way when 
when they need to think creatively to get out of the box of the problem to find a different way for success. And you you did that in 2001 because probably a lot of those people in that class kept calling people like, give me a million dollars, give me a million dollars, and you sort of found a different way. Do you think your mind sort of works that way? I think it did. It also, it, it aligned more with what I thought getting into financial services was going to be about in the first place, which was helping people with their problems. Uh, so I was in Austin at a time when uh, the city wasn't what it is today. You know, pretty much no me- large metropolitan area. It's all changed. Uh, real estate values have gone up. Populations have gone up, especially in the more attractive cities that have experienced a lot of uh, growth. In our case, almost double digit growth for several years in a row now. And at that time, there were a lot of these small businesses starting. People were leaving. So at the time, we were the largest city that had folks from IBM and a lot of other government entities, of course, were the state capital in Austin, Texas. And it was just some weird inflection point where I think the economy forced not just me, but a lot of people to reevaluate, do something different. So they were actually out starting businesses, whether that was a consulting firm, uh, hanging a shingle and leaving a big law firm or lobby firm. Uh, and IBM folks leaving and starting small software development firms as well. And the problem I came to solve was that once they went past themselves and wanted to hire two ex-colleagues from IBM, well, those people expected benefits. And I was one of the only people in town at, at the time thinking about, hey, you can offer a 401k plan attached to this payroll provider and it's an investment product. So you, you have to get that through me. So I solved this very unique problem. So I don't know that I'm the one that saw that opportunity, but maybe I capitalized on thousands of other people in our city actually changing course. Uh, If you recall, that was actually the time when companies like an IBM actually made drastic changes negatively to employees and their pension plans. So it kind of made more economic sense for them to leave. And that's what happened. We had 15, almost 15,000 employees for IBM working remotely. And those people went on to start some amazing companies. I'll give you examples like Indeed.com you probably used. Right, yep. Former IBMers. People that left semiconductor companies went on to start a company called Silicon Laboratories and Cirrus Logic. They were all here. And I set up probably their first retirement plans in the early 2000s. That's interesting. Um, yeah, my wife worked for uh, Johnson & Johnson. And in 1986, they went from a defined benefit to a defined contribution retirement plan and basically said, look, at you've got this much that you've earned. Here's your lump sum. And, you know, we'll hook you up with an investment advisor if you want, or you can invest it. She just put it in a, a no-load mutual fund that replicated the S&P like Gene Fama tells you to do. And she's got a pretty good nest egg, um, probably enough that she could kick me to the curb and be okay. So that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, the good news about Austin, too, is the place, like, because it's a capital city and it's also a university town, you do have an inf- a constant kind of flow of people through the town. That, that's definitely true. You know, that really helps, I think, where, you know, if you're like in, I don't want to pick on, uh, you know, Stillwater, Oklahoma, but it's a university town without a capital. I mean, Austin and like Madison, Wisconsin are sort of similar that way. That definitely helps. And then you you decided to become an RIA pretty much before the entire market did. I mean, that's a very popular path now for wealth managers, but it wasn't when you did. Why did you do it then? So again, for us, it was a little bit of circumstance and working out the math. Uh, I was working with 
if so, remember at this point, a lot of the companies I'd worked with, I'd graduated to working with larger and larger companies and Bank of America uh, ends up effectively acquiring Merrill Lynch in 2008. So that was the $50 billion acquisition that kind of got marked to market at 20 billion in two days later, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. John Thane made out. Okay. <laughs> he did, you know, and he was buying $20,000 trash cans for his office too. Uh, at the wow. Time. Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah. Apparently. And I, I, I remember going through pretty much all of this and, and this may be another episode altogether, but I can even talk about how uh, there were certain groups of us. I was part of that, that actually were the benefactors of these retention bonuses that were signed right at the 11th hour, uh, which was a big point of consternation that Bank of America had this larger bill to pay. But again, that's a, um, that's an episode for another time. But at this point in 2010, what had happened was that my companies, I was working now effectively for a bank and my corporate clients that I provided investment advice for at the 401k plan level uh, on behalf of the overall organization. So if a 100 person law firm might have had a $50 million retirement plan with me, they were also a very attractive lending and business banking client for Bank of America. So for us, it was a more a circumstance of it was very difficult to kind of maintain our uh, arm's length position as the manager for the account while my employer was also trying to pursue corporate banking business. And Again, it wasn't something that I probably sought out to be fair, but at that time there'd been consolidation happening in the wirehouses and anywhere I would have just walked across the street to go to. So the Merrill to Morgan, because the more popular choice, as you may have talked about on one of these episodes before, is to actually take a big check, which now has to be disclosed, didn't have to be disclosed then, to basically just try to take your book over to uh, Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. It was around then, successor to Solomon Smith Barney and Morgan Stanley as an independent and so forth. But the issues for us was trying to take our business over there. It was different. I had different types of clients. Uh, I was making a square peg and working a round hole at Merrill Lynch all the time, working with corporate instead of individuals. And the math worked out better for us to become an RIA and allowed us to actually enhance our ability to sort of say that we were on the same side of the table in the negotiations with uh, record keepers, asset managers, and so forth. So it, it worked out as a boon for us. And of course, it became the path that many people pursued years after. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're seeing it more and more and more. I think one of the scary things when you did it was, you know, when you were with a big firm, they provided a lot of back office resources, research, all kinds of tools for analyzing risk and helping, you know, the client where, you know, today those tools you can buy, you know, off the rack and plug and play into your, your business as you see fit. I mean, I'm, I'm an investor in, in a couple of them. Um, and they're, they're doing quite well. Also investnet was big, but not gigantic back then. So to do trading and stuff like that, you needed the support. Exactly. And then ironically enough, asset managers are so big and now investnet has 5% of their company owned by BlackRock. Just give you a sense of size there. Yeah, it's crazy, right? It's crazy. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that people think about, you know, people like you and I is we're just number crunchers. We look at Excel spreadsheets. And what people fail to realize is that the financial ecosystem is the most innovative in the entire world, more innovative than even medicine, even though the medicine innovations are more dramatic. You know, I'm going to cure cancer or whatever. 
in finance, it happens all the time because people are constantly reinventing themselves. They're trying to get return on capital, return on assets, and figuring out ways to bring transparency to markets that, that didn't exist or services to people that never before had them. And so um, it's incredibly innovative. Um, you started a robo-advisor. Can you talk about robo-advisors and what do you think about them? Where do you see them going? I have some thoughts about robo-advisors, but I'd be curious because you're very experienced in this space, what you see with that marketplace. Yeah. Um, after my RIA, so we, we sold that uh, to a much larger RIA and I sold my part in the RIA to actually pursue a different path, which is going to fintech and to build what you just said, a robo-advisor. So that term, I'm not even sure when it came about. It might have actually been slightly after we started. So we started in 2014. I don't know if this term really stuck until about 2015 and on, but uh, we were following in the footsteps of the Betterments, the wealth fronts, and then the ones that pivoted to different business models, the personal capital, SigFig, uh, LearnVest, and so forth. We were in that vein. And then I tried to put a little bit of a twist. So there were nuanced differences with all the robos. And ours, again, was sticking to what I knew, which was small business retirement and IRA and tax advantaged accounts is how I refer to them. I try not to use the lingos themselves, but I always refer use the term tax advantaged. And again, we started ours not because I thought that robo advice itself, uh, which is a little bit of a misnomer, is, is you probably, maybe that's where your thoughts are in that they're not automatically making dynamic changes. They're basically a set, you know, value menu number one through six, and you have to pick one through six. And typically you're required to ask some questions to put them into one of those six. And then the customer would have to proactively override. They don't want moderate menu, but instead they're okay with aggressive or conservative and so forth. So for us, the twist again, wasn't about robo advice itself being the end all be all. It was just trying to provide a more efficient way. I saw a gap then after working with retirement plans for small businesses and going all the way up to big fortune 1000 companies at this point in my, through my RA and my later days at Merrill, that there really wasn't a product that worked for businesses that had between two to 15 employees. And those aren't SMEs. Uh, SMEs are defined by Gartner as up to a thousand employees. I mean, we're talking micro, micro businesses, but there were many, many of them, millions of them. And it was very difficult to Every week, I was probably getting an email, text, LinkedIn message from some friend of a friend asking who I use. We have four people now. Now, where do I go? And there really wasn't a solution. So I was kind of driven to using the robo, um, which was an attractive space that was had an anchor and had some awareness amongst the venture and investor community. So you can get capital to start the business. Mm -hmm. But really, for me, it was actually a chassis to create a micro business retirement plan. That's what we used it for. And the way I view it, I guess I didn't answer the question. The way I view it is that even now, several years in, they're not really robots dynamically providing advice either. They're still very set it and forget it. Maybe just a mobile app delivered version of a strategic target date fund is maybe how I define them today. Yeah. You see a lot of stuff like on, let's say, Twitter where they sell the lows and buy the highs and stuff. I don't know. But my thing on robo-advisors is, you know, is investing in them is different than executing on them. So when, when we've looked at them, it seems like the customer acquisition cost is higher than the long-term value of the customer for several of them. How did you get around that? Was, was it a part of your business where it was a, a leader to get into the other part of your management business? Or, 
I'm just curious if you looked at customer acquisition costs versus long-term value, like the average size of the account and the fees that you got off it compared to how, how much it costs to get that account. Well, this is another, uh, I would say, new sort of trend that's happening in financial services, which is more of a subscription-based pricing as well. So Schwab kind of probably got the most right. notoriety for that recently, several months ago for their robo. But even when we did Honest Dollar back in 2014, to stabilize the way we were able to crunch those spreadsheet numbers, we actually had subscription pricing then. So we can't, we were seven, we were four to seven dollars, depending on how you came on board with us, whether it was through a channel or direct. So we had the subscription model regardless of the account size. So it was easier for us to model in the early days. It probably would have been penalizing to us in the later days if the accounts were larger, but we, to be fair, we didn't have a chance to cycle through. And it was for that very reason. We kind of worked out the math that the customer acquisition costs for us weren't going to justify what we were getting in the early days. And for us, we needed to raise a lot more capital to start to figure out a way to turn that product into a platform that might allow folks to go into different things. So if you notice today in the robo-advisors, they still have that problem today. But what they're finding is other revenue sources, whether those are ones that are directly charged to an end consumer or ones that... Uh, may come by way of affiliate. And this is no different than financial services. It's financial services itself has, I'll use the asset management industry as an example. There's really one usual cost that's very defined to the customer uh, in the form of an expense ratio that they can pay. Now, whether they can clearly work out that math easily and see how it's getting debited against their the market value of their account, that's another thing. But even then, there might be five, six other revenue streams accruing to the broker dealer, the traders, the money manager, the financial advisor, and so forth that the customer is not directly uh, paying. And I think that robos are going to try to figure out a way to do that because the same issue is happening in these neobank type businesses that are getting, I would argue, much more funding than robo advisors ever did. So these right. kind of new banks like Chime and the irony is that they're not actually banks. They have even smaller customer accounts generating less current money. But I think they're doing a better job of communicating that at some point down the line, they will monetize with other revenue sources, other products, and so forth. And that's where I think the robos were more penalized that way by not clearly communicating what is revenue stream two, three, four, eight, ten, and which ones get directly charged to Jeff and Henry versus which ones do you get by virtue of being that channel versus being and being the platform. And they weren't good at communicating that. Let's say we're 10 years in the future, because, you know, when you invest in startups, you sort of have to look 10 years in the future. Do you see a day where the human advisor goes away? Um, or if not, how do you see their role changing? Yeah, I don't see, uh, and I get asked this a lot, I don't see the human advisor going away, but I have clear thoughts on what I think uh, their role will change to. I think that advisors for a long, long time have their value proposition was based on advising clients on where to put money. So this investment, not that, uh, you know, this fund, not that. And I think in the future, and it's happening now, their value proposition is much more by abstracting up a different layer, managing a more broad uh, financial life on behalf of that customer across different product lines. So not just investment, insurance, uh, uh, planning, and so forth. And then I think if you stay, so this is probably more relevant since this is where I'm at, in the wealth, wealth area itself, I think that advisors will become 
their their role will morph much more into the overall planning and location of assets versus this investment versus that versus uh, what I've always worked in, which is holding it this way versus that way. So people make are making financial moves right now. So even at the trader level, so these are the sophisticated traders who listen to this podcast, they're making bets not on what potential regulations may change and so forth. And I think that in a slower way, I think a lot of people can work with an advisor that can help them with maybe trends towards longer term tax rates, uh, maybe where to think about living. So people are very mobile, right? So yeah, you, could, right, right. you could plan like a move to a low tax state pre-retirement, establish residency and use that to go into, let's say, the state school system for your children. And I think computers will augment that for folks because that's where the data will be. But I think advisors will still be in a position to deliver that. It just won't be more of the, hey, I think you should go into XYZ fund versus, you know, uh, A, B, and C stock individually in my manager's account system. I don't think that's going to exist 10 years from now. On this retirement thing, it's really interesting because I think the baby boomers hold about $14 trillion in assets. And when those move, you know, if you can capture just a little bit of that flow, I mean, that sounds like a typical startup pitch, but you can make a lot of money. And right now, I mean, I'm in that age, right, where we're looking at stuff and it's not just me, it's all my friends in Illinois because Illinois is a high tech state and we're looking at, you know, Texas, Tennessee, Florida, blah, blah, blah. But they are in Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, California, and the salt part of the new tax law really sort of brings a finer point to that where before you didn't feel the pain so much, but now you do of let's say high property taxes or high sales taxes. And so you could sort of ignore it, but in retirement, you know, maybe not. And maybe you don't want to just, you know, part with your money anyway. So you've done a lot of startups right now. You're working on rocket dollar. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I've technically only done two. This is my second that's a startup. My management consulting, my RA was maybe a startup, but not a tech startup. But not like a, yeah, that was just a, a, a cash flow business, as we say. Sure. Right, right. <laughs> Although it flowed a lot of cash. And so what's interesting about Rocket Dollar to me is I was self-employed and my uh, accountant said to me, this was back in the 80s, said, you know, you should really start a uh, self-directed IRA. And I said, I don't know what that is. And he says, he had his own plan that they put together that, you know, you could become a part of. And I did. And it was the smartest thing I ever did back when I was trading early because I could put as much money into it as I want. And then inside that plan, I could, I had a lot of flexibility as to what I could invest in. So it's interesting you're doing that with Rocket Dollar. Is it sort of the same thing? You're targeting sort of smaller and medium-sized businesses? So actually, we're going after individuals. So again, this is, um, you have to combine. So the one thing about fintech that I love is fintech creates, you know, for a lot of entrepreneurs that have never been in financial services, advantages in one way in that you come to, you come up with ideas with a very fresh perspective, and maybe you haven't been beat up by being in the industry. But then there's a good balance of someone who's been in the industry too, because the regulations that exist around financial services, which I would argue is maybe today the biggest natural moat protecting the, the big incumbents is actually those regulations, not their business model, not their money. Uh, the regulations create the moat. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. George Stigler would agree with you. George Stigler of the University of Chicago would echo you. Yeah. He got a Nobel Prize for just that theory right there. 
regulatory capture. <laughs> and for me, I look at a, a lot of trade wins and, and for at Rocket Dollar, we're targeting individuals because the rules related to when you control someone else's money or you have influence over that, then you have certain responsibilities, whether you're an advisor, whether you're a fiduciary at the, for the 401k plan sponsor committee, uh, you manage the pension plan and so forth, or you're a private equity or venture fund and you have responsibilities and duties to your LPs as an example. But when it's your own money, there aren't that many restrictions. People have the right to do what they want to do with their own money, provided they qualify for certain investments. So at Rocket Dollar, I would say primarily, I spent all of my career mostly working on the front end of the value chain and tax advantage accounts. So setting up the retirement plan, growing that, and then you know, kind of continuing that relationship. I never really spent a lot of time downstream when people left the plans that I managed, even though I probably facilitated thousands of rollovers out into IRAs or distributions and so forth as they spent through in retirement. But my realization kind of came to me that all the money downstream ends up trickling into an IRA. So the overall retirement asset in the United States is $27.3 trillion. Of that, IRAs are 10 trillion and growing because less people are contributing to these plans currently. And as you mentioned, the boomers are starting to take money out of them. So I want to be there where that $10 trillion is because that's money that's available to go into investments. And, and at Rocket Dollar, we're letting individuals basically unlock those funds. And instead of the 99.6% of that $10 trillion that's currently invested in only stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, we allow them to go into a deal through Hyde Park Angels or you know Central Texas Angel Network if they qualify. Yeah. So to kind of query that point a little bit, because I've invested in my self-directed IRA into stuff, but a lot of a lot of people don't understand the mechanics around that. And so, one thing I'd ask is, what are the differences if I use what I would call real money from you know your bank account versus retirement money on taxes when you're investing in a startup, let's say a risky startup, and then how do you custody it? So. The custody itself, um, we, we have a product structure that we create a limited liability corporation on behalf of each of our customers. So we're only custodying that LLC entity. And we have approval processes for certain investments to make sure that they qualify to be held in the tax advantaged accounts. But, uh, you know, unbeknownst to a lot of people, in 1974, the only thing that was actually codified in the code to not be allowed to be held in a tax deferred account was collectibles and life insurance. The real sort of determinant is that you can't do transactions uh, with yourself or with disqualified persons. So that, that's a different level. But the only thing you can, you, know, you can't own Air Jordans and Picassos and a life insurance policy on yourself or someone else inside of the IRA. So those are the only things that were codified. And for me, to answer the first question you had about the tax treatment, it's really no different. At the end of the day, if you purchase a note into a company that's similar to owning I guess, a stock that may have a payout. So if and when that, that investment pays out and there's a gain, uh, then the gains can be deferred because it, it stays inside of the account. It's controlled when you take it out. It'll be post 59 and a half. And if the $25,000 principal investment may have gained 25000 to double, and you decide to only take out 10000 of the gain after 59 and a half, you'll pay taxes then on it. So no different than if you owned a stock today at 25000 held it for 10 years or five years, and it doubled. 
and you take a distribution. Right. But what about the qualified small business deduction? So if I invested that 25000 out of my bank account into a startup that had less than $50 million in asset value, the first $10 million is tax-free to me. After a certain period of time, yeah. So it's a give After and take. After five years, so, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so there's a give and take. So owning investments inside of a tax advantage account versus owning outside there's advantages actually to both. So I try to tell people that, again, I've been a financial advisor for a long time as a professional for most of it. And then more recently, just I keep the licenses and I don't practice. But I tell people that it's very important to diversify, not just among different asset classes, but different treatments from a tax standpoint of your accounts. Because if you're a real estate investor, as an example, it makes sense to actually own different properties in different types of accounts. Because in some of them, you're probably going to want that depreciation uh, benefit when you own it with quote unquote, what you said, the regular money. Uh, but in others, you may not want the sting of ordinary income from the rent payments hitting you every month and getting added to your income because you might be buying these properties today in your 42 to 55 year age range, which are also aligned. You still live in Illinois, high tech state. And those are also aligned with your 13 peak earning years in your professional career. So the last thing you might want is an $2,000 a month come, coming from three different rental properties, adding another 6000 in income on a monthly basis. So you might choose to shelter that in an IRA uh, and just accumulate those. But in others, you want the depreciation and so forth. Why wouldn't you do some stuff like, let's say, in a Roth where you, you put it in and then the dollars you take out are tax-free because you've already paid the tax? No, that, that's another one. Uh, so remember, a lot of our customers today don't currently qualify to contribute to a Roth. So they make income over the thresholds where they can qualify. But we have a lot of people, and this is, again, this is a strategy that I think human advisors will be very well served. I think that you know, for someone who's listening out there that might be a trader, but also kind of thinking about becoming an RIA, I think that someone could make a big business out of being a niche. I specialize in sort of creating these uh, Roth conversions. Like use that as the tip of your spear. I think you'll get a lot of attractive, sophisticated clients uh, and you'll be differentiated you know, for something other than maybe your relationship ability, uh, which is what many RIs rely on. But exactly, we have a lot of customers come to us. They don't qualify to contribute to a Roth today, but they have the cash in a regular account and they have investments they want to make and they will come to us and do a big Roth conversion and then end up with a rocket dollar Roth. So we offer... I guess the technical term is self-directed IRAs, the types of accounts that allow you to keep tax advantage of an IRA 401k, but invest in uh, private and unregistered securities. But we have many of them that do a Roth conversion with us on our really? platform. Really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So we offer all flavors of a Roth, uh, of an IRA, traditional, uh, SEP, Roth, inherited, and so forth. So you always went B2B before. I'm a B2B fintech investor, and the reason that I am is because it's a well-defined market, you know, blah, blah, blah. And my track record shows that, you know, I'm not as good a, a consumer investor. And so you, you, you follow your, your success and your effort. Why did you choose to go B2C with this company when you had so much success B2B before? Yeah. Um, well, remember, we're, we're B2C in the delivery of the product today. So people go online to rocketdollar.com and they're opening accounts individually. But we do have plans long run to basically distribute through business channels. So we talked a lot about advisors that came from that world. 
Uh, we even mentioned earlier a company like an investment Yodely. And, you know, my ultimate goal with Rocket Dollar would actually be as an option within those platforms that investment owns or their competitors at advice and uh, an e-money advisor, which is a part of Fidelity. And when clients may want to take some small portion of their monies, then they can actually basically tap into us through their turnkey asset management platform system. And then that our long-term goals are actually to be distributed through more of a B2B channel. Okay. At the end customer, of course, because it's an IRA, that's just by definition, the I stands for individual has to be the individual consumer. But our distribution, we really kind of view long run is going to be B2B. And I think that allowing individuals to take a small portion of that money and invest in things that maybe are closer to their own particular personal knowledge base, so their head is what we call it, or closer to their heart, something they care about, maybe buying a rental property on the other side of town in Chicago, for example, or maybe they went to Notre Dame and they could buy one in South Bend. They have homes in South Bend for under 120000 Right. Rent it out on football Saturday. <laughs> or rent it out to the people in the community that basically make sure that Notre Dame stays, you know, okay, like that, that it looks beautiful the way it does. They support the city. But uh, those homes, think about it this way. Bank of America probably won't provide a mortgage to those homes, but a University of Notre Dame graduate living in Chicago could actually own that home and then lend it, rent it out as an investment. Helps both sides, right? Do you have tools on Rocket Dollar to analyze stuff like that? So, uh, you know, I'm not a sophisticated real estate investor. Let's say I want to invest in real estate. I have no idea how to even think about it. Yeah. So we don't have the tools to analyze the investments themselves. And we thought long and hard about this. So the other thing is that I have been an advisor for a long time, which meant that for the most part, I've told people or recommended where they should go or how they should hold their money. And what we found with this one is in the early phases, it's actually better to go free form because people already know their area. So in your case, you have friends that are expert real estate investors, but whenever they're evaluating a real estate tech startup, they come to you to ask your thoughts on it because that's your background and what you know uh, and so forth, right? Even, even though you don't know real estate, you understand how to evaluate the foundations of an early stage technology company that has a chance to grow uh, regardless of what they actually do. It doesn't have to be fintech, uh, just like for me. And I think that when you give people that opportunity, you allow them to kind of open up and and invest their money into areas where they know. So you mentioned people like Eugene Fama, and that's how you you know you went to school with all of them, or at the same school, not at the same time. You're not that old. Yeah, I got my MBA. Yeah, <laughs> I got my MBA at Chicago. I had uh, when I was on the board of CME, I used to have lunch with Merton Miller all the time, and literally would just pepper him with questions. And, you know, he told me basically, I said, because in my generation, the deal was you, you went to undergrad and then if you were a business person, you got an MBA if you wanted to do blah, blah, blah. And I, I told uh, Merton, I said, you know, Professor Miller, I always wanted to get my MBA. And he looked at me and he said, if you do, you do it at Chicago. Um, I applied to Northwestern. They rejected me because I wasn't corporate enough. And so I, I went to Chicago and um, it turned out to be the best thing for me. Um, because it fit it fit who I was. What I understood from the trading pit was taught in academia there with a lot of math behind it. It's like Merton Miller said, you know, um, they, they asked him about stock splits once, and he said, well, if I have a dollar in one pocket and four quarters in the other, which is more valuable? 
and they go, it, that, that's nonsensical. He goes, well, there's a lot of math that can prove that, you know? And so it was a great experience for me. Not that everybody should go to Chicago, but, you know, you got to go to the school that fits. Yeah. And, you know, what I'm capitalizing on is saying that I think that a lot of these very investment and finance oriented MBA programs have actually always talked about what the smart, big money investors do from a diversification standpoint. And then the same companies that are facilitating that in the private markets. Uh, there was an article that three days ago that came out that even Vanguard is considering investments in private equity at this point. Uh, Fidelity, when Lyft went public, was the largest investor and shareholder in Lyft on the day of IPO. You know, what's interesting is about that, you making that statement. So when you're in MBA school in your, in your investments class, they conjugate beta for you so that you can see what it looks like. And it's like a fascinating topic. But I was talking to somebody about value investing. I was thinking about this. Um, actually, abnormal returns. Um, Tadas asked me that question. And I thought, you know, because of sort of very low interest rates, the cost for going public, the fact that in the last 10 to 15 years, we have half the amount of publicly traded companies that we did. Everybody's going private because the private markets are there. It seems to me that the value investor, the traditional value investor, is the private equity investor today. And so it makes sense that Vanguard would would start to look at that. The hard thing is you got to pick the manager. There's no way to just buy a basket of managers. Exactly. I, so th that becomes an issue. And, you know, on a smaller level, I, I'm just letting people go into things where whether it's true or not, remember, this is a small portion of the money that they have and they have a right to choose how they invest it. They feel like they, they have an understanding. I mean, you, you mentioned earlier that someone that goes into real estate doesn't have an understanding of this or someone that might look at a small early stage technology investment doesn't understand. But you went to the University of Chicago, the people listening to the podcast through Top Step Trader are experts. But if we were to walk out into the streets of downtown Chicago and downtown Austin, I mean, I don't think the average person is going to be able to explain to us how an, an ETF is made up versus a mutual fund. <laughs> no, I don't think they you will know, What all. a specialist is on the floor of the, of the exchange. And so remember, I don't know that there's understanding as much as it's been around a long time and there's comfort because of that familiarity doesn't mean understanding, in, in my opinion. And it, it also doesn't mean low risk. <laughs> exactly. So that, that's another issue. And for those that choose to do so for you know a couple hundred bucks a year, or essentially the way we like to communicate, if you want to do one small deal on your own for 20 grand or so, you pay 1% as a fee to us to maintain the account because we're not a part of your investment. And we allow you to tap into these monies that you have. I mean, if, if there's, let's say... 50,000 listeners to this podcast, there's actually probably 70,000 IRAs and slash old 401ks amongst the group. It's some number higher than one per person that's been working. So usually multiples in that case. And we want to help unlock that. And again, everything I've done in my career has always been about trying to be a little bit early in the trend. And the trend I see is that, okay, you just mentioned it. If companies have access to capital and it's low cost to stay private, you really can't do anything to force those companies to go public earlier. So I want to be the person doing the other, the zagging when everyone else is zigging and saying, well, then why not let me create a vehicle that might allow the money to go private easier? The other side of the equation. And I can control that. I know how to do that. I was just at a booth conference with a bunch of public CEOs 
talking about um, what it was like to be a public CEO versus a private CEO. And this one guy said, I will never be a public CEO ever again. I just won't deal with the, the mess. Was that um, Elon Musk? It was not, although he probably should go private. <laughs> I feel like that's something he would say, maybe not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, I won't say who it was, but he, he had been a public CEO for like 25 years. And his company was taken private by private equity. And he said, at the first board meeting, we had to do this whole presentation on all these different things. And um, the private equity investor pulled him aside and said, look, at, at every board meeting, I only want to know the answer to two questions. How do we make money and how do we make more money? And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to know this other stuff. So Right, right. So it's so good you, to know. And how much tolerance do you have for like, I, I guess I'd say problem employees or somebody's not doing well or they're disrupting the team or the flow. How much tolerance should a CEO have for that? And what should they do about it? And and when is the right time to kind of ask that employee to leave? And then how, how would you do it? Kind of a lot of questions in a row there. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, if I if I if I work from the most the the the, the most recent one and backwards, uh, I think a part of that is having good systems uh, from a measurement standpoint in place. Because that will actually give you the information you need, right? So then you have something quantitative to understand that there are systems in place to kind of ensure certain outputs and levels of performance. And rather than you using some sort of biased judgment, you're going to have concrete information. I think that's important because if you don't have that, then you really have no real legs to stand on. Because if you make this decision to move someone away from your team, terminate them from the company directly, but you don't have real good data and information to stand on, well, you're not going to be respected by the individual you're giving this news to either because they're going to recognize that. You're, you're letting human uh, bias judgment come into play. So that's important. I think if you have that system in place, the rest of the questions you ask, which are when do you make that decision, how do you inform the employee, I think kind of answer themselves. You have the information to present to them. And you clearly have some sort of quantitative measure that would indicate that uh, they're not you know, contributing at the level you need them to. And I think it'd become, at that point, a mutual understanding to where it's not a good fit. Now, the other thing is if your team or your organization is large enough, is there an opportunity to, to take that person and put them into a different part of your team? That's something different altogether. Yeah, you always hear, you know, hire slowly and and fire fast and in startup circles, but, and I think that's just kind of a catchy, you know, it's a quick, easy way to say it. There's a lot of terms in the startup world. I think are just, they sound really catchy. So they catch on, but then you sort of look at the words and, and even though it's only four or five words or six words, you still say to yourself, what does that really mean? You know, how am I supposed to interpret that? Exactly. Exactly. Very interesting. Um, if, if I was going to start a startup today, you're, you're an angel investor in, in the, um, in the central, um, Texas Angel Network. What would you uh, tell me if I was if I was getting ready? I'm going to start a startup. I come to you for a little advice. What would you tell me? Yeah, you know what I tell people, um, and I do say this a lot, which is I like you probably less than you. Um, I hear a lot of startup pitches, and they want to solve 15 big big problems that uh, take a lot of resources, take a lot of money, and are going to take quite frankly a lot of time. 
Um, and it's very easy to talk this way until you've actually put a uh, sort of finger to code and start building something. And I, I tell people, maybe concentrate on the one small problem that you can solve today. And, and I even use examples of the biggest startups that we know today that are, uh, I guess, successfully IPOing or at least capitalizing on the public markets. People can define their business in one sentence, even an average person. So, you know, and, and I'm not trying to speak to the successes of these businesses as a as an actual profitable entity, but I'm just saying the success of their ability to get scale, uh, capture investors, and maybe change the way we live. So the Ubers, the Lyfts, very easy to describe what their business is. Pretty much today a one-trick pony. Now, one day are they going to manufacture cars that will drive themselves and maybe morph into an airplane company? Possibly. But 10 years in and $80 billion in market cap later, they're pretty much still doing the same thing they did in 2009. Right. Yep. Pretty and it's much. focus. I think it's focus and just getting really good. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, yeah. Pinterest is still doing the same thing. I mean, you know. WeWork is doing the same thing. Um, you know, they're all pretty much doing the same thing. I mean, and I tell people to focus. So for me, I, I, I use mine as an example. I explain my business by saying, I'm a web platform that lets people take their IRAs, keep the benefits, and then invest in things that aren't stocks, bonds, mutual funds. And then the next questions I get from investors sometimes or friends are, well, what about this and this and this? And be like, well, that's great. So if you're one of these investors that wants to give me $40 million today, I'm happy to start these other uh, features on my product roadmap. But until then, I got to get really freaking good at what I do. And then when I do that, I got to figure out a way to make that freaking awesome. <laughs> that one specific thing I do. Right. And it, it builds a competitive moat for you as well to, to fend off competitors because there's always... If somebody sees you doing well, somebody will try to copy you or the alternative of that is there's, you know, how many billions of people in the world, if it's a good idea, you're not the only one that's going to have that idea. And so it really does come down to execution when it's startups, which makes them so hard because it is so hard to execute. Exactly. And I just tell people it's, it's focus. It's, it's focusing down on one problem because when you hear early stage pitches, it's really interesting, but if you think about it, if you're an early, early stage investor, so let's say seed and pre-seed, the companies actually typically have more ambitious plans at that stage than if you're kind of looking at a portfolio of a successful uh, Series B firm. Because at that point, they really work. They've, they've kind of figured out that one thing that works. Yeah, and, and they're, being, they're being capitalized to keep winning in that particular space. Uh, own that first and then figure out a way to expand later. So Amazon Books... Now, <laughs> yeah, is <laughs> <it's> everything <laughs> to groceries. So, and I think that's even their logo, right? The everything store. But their S1 actually was filed as to be the largest bookstore in the world was actually the line, the headline on their S1. And now they're the, called the everything store. Yeah, that company, it's very, very interesting. Um, so for you, what's your next big goal? So with, uh, I, I guess my, I'm 100% focused right now. I've scaled back a lot of my own angel investing to focus on my own thing. Um, you know, we hit a couple of great milestones at Rocket Dollar. So we have customers now in all, almost all 50 states. I think we're missing one or two. And you know we're in the mid eight-figure assets under management range. So for me, my big goal would be uh, to get that number to nine figures and continue and get a little bit better at tracking what people are doing you know, with the investments. So we can see where the money's going in and out but I'd love to be able to have a better sense and not 
not because it's data that I plan on using for commercial purposes, but I think it'll help me understand when people have a chance to unlock the funds. Uh, I think it's a neat research experiment to see the trends of where things are going. Is it going into early stage private companies or is it going into real estate? I mean, this is a, a natural curiosity question that I want to know. And I also think that if I could turn it into a little bit of research, it could be valuable as well for the investment industry. Yeah. And totally different risk profiles in both of those two investments that you talked about, startups versus um, real estate. I mean, totally different risk profiles, which I guess would go back to, you know, you could go back to the person and find out what they invested in prior to see what their risk tolerance was, I guess. Yeah. Or what drove them. I mean, it's weird, but we have some customers come into us just, you know, purely to get away from the public markets. They feel like it could be a peak and they're hiding and it's either sit in a money market type of count or maybe go and purchase a property that might generate an income stream. When do you know what you're doing is wrong? How do you know when to quit? I guess for me, you can tell pretty early on if you're if you're not onto something because again, if in the early stage, you really only have maybe one or two shots at pivoting. I guess maybe Stuart Butterfield from Slack and Flickr, uh, notwithstanding, you know, you you might only have that one chance to really change that business model pretty drastically because you sold your investors on one particular uh, product idea, and I think people actually respect you for you know coming to a realization very quickly and winding things down. As far as what the actual catalyst is, I think that's a number of factors depending on the business because certain businesses might, there might be a salvage component uh, to your team could be valuable to a larger entity because you have a product and engineering team and it'd be harder for them to just get that up all of a sudden. So they may have no interest in your tech, but they'd be interested in your team. And then uh, I would say probably more so with our robo-advisor, there was a lot more interest on behalf of of the acquirer Goldman Sachs on the technology uh, than there was anything else you know, a, a working chassis to kind of distribute mutual funds digitally in a mobile app. So I think that's also a CEO's job to kind of recognize what uh, optionality there may be uh, in good times and in bad, being able to go quick. Well, thank you very much for coming on the Limit Up podcast. I wish Rocket Dollar a lot of success because I think what you're doing is pretty cool. I, I believe wholeheartedly, um, that people should be able to do what they want with their own money. That's what makes the world go round. I mean, if right now with accredited investor rules, um, you know, that person that saw Facebook and just wants to throw five grand in it can't, which is a, a different kind of constraint on um, investing. But um, wish you a lot of success and uh, stay away from the heat in Austin. I hope you take a dip in Barton Springs down there and cool your body core down. <laughs> Because um, it gets it gets hot in the summer, they tell me. That's right, and Barton Creek stays the same temperature. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we've really enjoyed having you on the program. Perfect. All right, I appreciate it, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks, traders. Thank you for making it all the way to the end of the Limit Up podcast, presented by Top Step Trader. This is the part of the program where I remind you all to subscribe to this podcast. Wherever podcasts are sold, rented, subscribable. Anyway, be sure to hit that button. Also, join our private Facebook community. Read our blog. Name your firstborn child after the Top Step Trader Trading Combine. You know the drill. Mark, Jeff, myself, and the gang will all be back next week with a brand new guest. At this point, I occasionally do a little trader therapy as a sign-off. 
But frankly, I just got back from Ireland this week, and uh, I feel pretty exhausted and bloated from all the fried food and Guinness I consumed. However, as is customary of the Irish, I also feel rather sentimental. So instead of trader therapy today, I will leave you all with the traditional Irish trader blessing. First, allow me to warn one of our listeners in particular that this will probably be quite stupid. You know who you are, and I apologize. But anyway, may the trend rise up to meet you. May the momentum always be at your back. May the rains fall soft upon your fields, specifically when you are short corn futures. And until we meet again, may the Fed telegraph interest rates in an orderly fashion going forward. So until next time, everybody, slancha and trade well. This episode produced by Dante32. Futures in Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.